Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. For today, we're going to jump back into our Jonah series. And so this is week two. Last week, we established that uh, disobedience brings a storm into our lives. And so we kind of watched as Jonah underwent that process. Today, what we're going to do is look at um, repentance, which is sort of a religious word that we need to rediscover in a new way. So we're going to talk about shallow repentance and deep repentance. We're going to talk about how it's uh, foreign to us, but also pretty necessary. So first, we recap the story of Jonah. Jonah gets called to Nineveh, a sinful place with sinful people. They've gone wayward. God wants to use Jonah to wake them up, to preach to them. He refuses, goes the opposite direction. His disobedience brings a storm. Then he realizes he's the problem. He has the people on the boat throw him overboard. So he's on a boat going the wrong way. They throw him overboard. He's swallowed by a great fish or whale or sea monster, depending on what uh, version of the Bible you use. Uh, And then chapter two, he has a prayer that is essentially from within the beast that says, I got to get this right. And God, you're God and I'm not. So at that point, he comes around and we pick up the story with him being uh, released onto the beach and heading towards Nineveh. That's where we're going to pick it up. That said, there are people, maybe you're in here and you're struggling with this right now. There are people who often struggle with this story. So I figure it's the right time to have this conversation. People struggle with some of the more um, uh, fantastical elements of Scripture. There will be people, maybe it's you, or maybe it's just someone you know, and you don't know how to have that conversation. People will go, well, that's great and all, but he spent three days inside of a whale, lived to tell about it, and then went and did, like, maybe that's not really true. Or people will say the same about Noah or about creation or any of the various parts of Scripture that seem sort of difficult for us in our more rational minds. What you need to know is uh, Scripture is full, and this is maybe for you today, maybe it's for you to take to your friends. Scripture is full of all types of uh, types of writing, different genres of writing, historical, prophetic, um, there's apocalyptic, there's poetic, there's all these different types of writing. What we uh, understand here as a church, we affirm that the Bible is true and inerrant, meaning it is without error. So we would say that it's written by humans under the guidance of the Holy Spirit without error. And theologically then, from there you go, okay, now where? Theologically, we care about the essentials. We care about the essentials. So we have some members of our church who are young earth creationists. They would say the earth is a few thousand years old. They read the Bible literally and say this is exactly how it went. The earth was created in seven literal days or six plus a day of rest. That's that. We also have church members who are old earth people who say it's actually millions and billions of years old and it was figurative language in Genesis. And we would look at both of those people and say you're both welcome to be members of this church because we believe the same thing, the essential thing, which is what? God is the author and the creator. And so we're not so concerned on which side of a line you're on and that thing as much as the acknowledgement is God is the author and creator. Now, you can have a good argument about that. Maybe you can do that outside of this place. But his word is good and true. And so it's flummoxing sometimes for people to read Jonah and be like, do we really believe this is true? Or people will say, see, this is why I can't believe. Like, nice story, good teacher, but maybe not for me. And this is where I would say it's important for us to zoom out from here and go, listen, 
This is a story. Our faith is a, is a we're part of an eternal narrative, we believe, of a God who lives outside of time, who literally brought meaning and creation from nothing. So from absence of life, God spoke and life began. And then chose, when humanity went wayward, chose then to send his only begotten son to come live a perfect life, be crucified and buried and resurrected. That's part of the story, to bring life again from the absence of life. So maybe we, as his people, shouldn't get stuck on the minutia of marine life, okay? That's how that goes. Because you can get all zoomed in on the little particulars of, do you really think, do you think God chose to grow a vine? Do you think that, what kind of whale? Is it a big fish? Could it have been a grouper? Those are big. I've heard of those. And you go, don't get stuck on the minutia of the details. Zoom out far enough to go, is it good and true? And is God using it to shape our lives and transform us? And we would say it's good and true. How you want to get there, I don't know how you want to get there, but that's what I want to say. Because the enemy, we have an enemy. And if we had an enemy, the enemy would want you to miss out on life-transforming truth because you got stuck on a detail. And so don't get stuck on the details. Don't let your friends get stuck on the details. Zoom out just a little bit and go, but if it's good and true, what's God trying to tell you? Jonah chapter three. This time, Jonah started off straight for Nineveh, obeying God's orders to the letter. Nineveh was a big city, very big. It took three days to walk across it. Jonah entered the city went one day's walk and preached, in 40 days Nineveh will be smashed. The people of Nineveh listened and trusted God. They proclaimed a citywide fast and dressed in burlap to show their repentance. Everyone did it, rich and poor, famous and obscure, leaders and followers. And when the message reached the king of Nineveh, he got up off his throne, threw down his royal robes, dressed in burlap, and sat down in the dirt. Then he issued a public proclamation throughout Nineveh, authorized by him and his leaders." Not one drop of water, not one bite of food for man, woman, or animal, including your herds and flocks. Dress them all, both people and animals, in burlap and send up a cry for help to God. Everyone must turn around, turn back from an evil life and the violent ways that stain their hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn around and change his mind about us. Quit being angry with us and let us live. Everyone must turn around is what he says. There's kind of two types of students is maybe how we can explain this. College students, where are the college students? Just show of hands, college students. Okay, yeah, you're sprinkled today. What's more sprinkled than normal? Um, we also have middle school students, just middle school by show of hands. Yeah, you're here. High school? Wish you were still in middle school or high school. That's everyone else. Ooh, ooh. You pay the bills. I'll just go to school. I think there's two types of students. At almost every level, there's two types of students. There's some students who are there to be students. And in the college world, this is a college town, you get that. There's two types of college students, maybe. There's, there's those that are there for the education and those who are more there for the experience. Okay, you see where I'm going with that? There's the student who's there for the student part. And then there's the student who's kind of um, there for the partying, but student is the ticket into the party life. It's obviously not black and white, but it's generally true. Everybody falls on maybe one side of that continuum, but it's, you know, do your thing. The party student embraces, we would say, the idea of college. They embrace the idea of college as an entrance fee into the life of um, hedonism. The true student doesn't just embrace college, they embody college by, like, I don't know, studying, right? They're there for the education. That's the main point. And they're really living out the stated ideal of the university. The university says it exists as a place of higher education. 
which is great, but some people are not there to embrace it. I mean, they're not there to embody it. They just embrace that idea to do what they want to do, while the true student is there to fully embody the mission of the university, get the education to further themselves and their careers as they go. So this works with all things, not just students. Some of you embrace budgeting as an idea. It's a good idea. I'm not mad at that. I like the idea. When there's no money, I suppose that's a budget. Others of you actually embody it. You know where your money goes. You may live out an envelope system or you have a deep sense of accounting of where everything is at all times. Some of you embrace a healthy lifestyle of diet and exercise. You affirm the idea that exercise is good and that a salad may be better than an ice cream bowl. You may affirm that and embrace it. But push comes to shove, meh, I'd, I'd rather live. Some of you, though, embody that healthy lifestyle. And you're in the fullness of it. And so when forced with the decision, you're making the difficult decision to embody the fullness of a healthy lifestyle. Are you catching the difference? There's embracing something. Mm, that's nice. And there's embodying it, actually living it out. Our faith works like this. Some people embrace Jesus as a concept. Well, he's a nice idea. He's a good teacher. It's a fun concept. Others embody the Christ life. And it's a big difference. The difference between Jesus is a good teacher, and I, I like the idea of kindness and forgiveness, is very different than Jesus is the Lord and creator of the universe, and I want to give my life to live out his life. Those are wildly different things, and yet we're, as a society, we're pretty much okay with people claiming the first and not living it out. Like, like Christian celebrities are a thing, not celebrity Christians. That's a different thing. I don't like that either. But a lot of, if you Google almost any celebrity um, it'll say what their religious affiliation is. So uh, one of my kids and I were having a conversation about Taylor Swift and Patrick Mahomes, who are both Christians, according to whatever the internet says a Christian is. And I don't know anything about them personally. I don't know anything about their private lives. But what we see is, you know, when you watch the documentary on Netflix about quarterbacks and you see a lot more bad words than I'm used to and, and a lot more chugging of drinks than I'm, you know, and you're just like, well, this... I don't know that the lifestyle lines up with what a fully embodied Christian lifestyle is for either of these people. And I'm not saying they are or not Christians. I'm not saying I know what they believe or don't believe. But I think it's really easy for us to call someone something because they embrace it. And what we, what we need to see in Scripture is, is the Bible never invites us to embrace Christianity. It invites us to embody it. It never invites us to simply embrace it and say it's nice and affirm it and then go about our lives. It, it invites us to have our lives transformed by the embodiment of the Holy Spirit in our lives, transforming us into new creations that will then live eternally with the Creator, which is really different than I can affirm those teachings. And we have to get to the bottom of that for ourselves to figure out where am I on that line of I embrace some of this stuff versus I'm really living it out. Jesus called us to more. One episode in Luke chapter 9 illustrates it a little bit. We'll just read it. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, him being Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Instead of like, yeah, come along. To another, he said, follow me. But that one said, Lord, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those back at home. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Following Jesus, this is one of these episodes, and we've taught this before, so I'm not going to go so into it today, but this is one of those episodes where Jesus is telling him it's a whole life sacrifice. What you think you're signing up for, embracing me and my teaching, is different than embodying me and my teaching. Can I come with you? Well, you might be homeless. Ooh. Can I come with you after I do this thing? Nope. Ooh. Well, can I, um, can I do it my way? Jesus, can I follow you my way? No. Huh. Jesus won't be followed for your gain or your glory on your timeline or your terms. Jesus is only allowing you to follow on his timeline and his terms for his gain and his glory. And until we're fully embodied with him, none of that makes sense. I'm giving my life for something else. A lot of people want to embrace Jesus is what he's essentially telling these people. But few have the temerity to embody the Christ life. To deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. So let's talk about repentance, because what we see in Jonah is repentance. The people have turned. Maybe you've heard this term. Repentance simply means turning around, 180 degree change. If, if sin is walking east this way, then repentance means you turn and walk. <coughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> if, if sin is walking east, you should turn and walk Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're in here. What's wrong with the rest of you? Come on. All right. Got to get them here more often. Repentance finds you walking west. If sin is going east, repentance means going west. So here's the story. When, when we lived in Texas, we were shopping for a house. This is, uh, I don't know, 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. We're shopping for a house and... Um, we come up to this house. I really liked this house. It had like a green belt behind it. It was, I loved everything about it. We walked in and the way we'd go through a house, my wife would go into the kitchen and she's looking at actual functional things. And then being man and being me, um, I just went into the garage to check the garage. You know, like why I always went into the garage first, I don't know, but I did. And I'd always go in the garage first like, yep, looks pretty good in here. I don't know what I wanted to see, but I looked in it. This one garage I looked in, not so great. Do you know on your garage door, as, your, as a garage door opens, it kind of has like breaks in it, almost like little flaps. On the inside of the garage door, it has little uh, flaps. And inside one of these little kind of metal L bracket things on the inside of the garage door was about a six foot long snake, just curled up about four feet off the ground inside the garage door little L bracket. I don't know, we, we probably never talked about this before, but I don't really like snakes, Okay. Not my thing. And, and so this, he's a giant black snake. And I was like, well, we're leaving. My parents were with us at this time. They were looking at this house too with us. And my father, being an utterly insane person, said, I'll take care of it. <laughs> so he picks it up. And I don't know. I, you know, I passed out at this point. But he picks it up. <laughs> he opens the garage door, walks out the driveway, takes about 20 yards out to the right and dangles it down into the little storm drainage thing, the little culvert that's set into the curb. He just kind of sets it down in there. I don't know what he thinks it's going to do, but it's gone, right? I take a deep breath. He comes back in. We close the garage door. I tour the rest of the house. I go, it's actually really nice. The backyard's great. It's a perfect location. I love everything about it. Okay, well, that's a lot. I'm breathing heavy thinking about this thing. We're about to leave, and then we go through and do what you're supposed to do. We're turning off all the lights and taking our last look. And in this process, I look back in the garage, 
and the snake is back in the house. <laughs> in its exact same spot in the garage door. And I loved this house and it is the snake's house. I said, we are leaving. We're not going to live in this house. The house belongs to the snake. Clearly, we're gone. I repented from liking this house. We were walking towards the house. I found the snake, and I said, I don't think so. Let's go the other way. This is repentance in some form or fashion. What we usually mean in our culture when we talk about repentance is trying harder. You should really change. I'll try harder, or I'll take a short break, or I'll find something to distract myself. We are a white-knuckle culture. You know what that means? It means if you're, if you imagine holding onto something real tight and trying to, to hold on forever, your knuckles get white as the blood rushes out of you. It's, we're a white-knuckle, can-do, I'll-do-it-myself kind of culture. So, let me talk, frankly, for a moment about an issue in the modern world called pornography. Sorry, here we are. Some people are like, really? Yes. If you don't talk about it in church, where are you going to talk about it? Statistically speaking, pornography is a problem in our modern society. I don't know what the exact numbers are. You never know if they're totally true. But the average number is somewhere around 60% of adults, not males, adults who attend church regularly are regularly looking at pornography. There's no, um, nothing great about that, but there's also, there doesn't mean to be shame in the room. Um, this is a, a scourge of our modern society. It's something that we're dealing with, but it's something we have to talk about. We have an enemy that has used this weapon really well against us. It doesn't lead to flourishing, it doesn't lead to health, it doesn't lead to any good outcome, but it afflicts everyone, men, women, young, old. Of all the people who've been in my office, and there have been many, looking for help to get away from the pull of pornography or lust in general, I usually say, what's the main um, mechanism by which these images come into your world? And the common answer is my phone, Right? In my pocket, I have access to unlimited videos, images, and all the things. And my common challenge is, would you be willing to get up with me right now? I'll drive you there myself and throw your phone in the mommy river. And everybody kind of laughs like, well, that's funny. I'm like, what if I'm not joking? While it's a heart issue, not a phone issue, it's not a technology issue, it's a heart issue. If the main access point to something is the phone and you really want to get rid of the thing, it would make sense that we throw the phone in the river and we're at step one of turning away from the sin. But most of us don't really like that idea of repentance. We like the idea of, I'll just try, can you give me a book to read? Can you give me a strategy? Um, can you tell me to try harder? Encourage me? Tell me that stat, 60%, I'm a majority. Like, that's not how it works. I say, go throw your phone in the river. No one's taking me up on it yet. It's like if you told me you had a problem with alcohol and I came to your house and your fridge is still full of beer and your liquor cabinet is still full of whiskey and I, you say, I have a real problem with alcohol. And I go, well, why is, your, why is there so much alcohol here? Well, I'm just trying to be better for a season. I think I can get through this. And I would go, well, it would make sense to me. The first thing you would do if you have a real problem with alcohol is you would rid yourself from the easy access to alcohol, wouldn't you? And you'd go, well, that sounds smart, but I just like to keep the beer here in case. And no one would tell me that's a good idea. And yet we have a, a problem in our society with explicit images and videos. And instead of getting rid of the device by which 99% of them enter into our lives, 
I would love to walk into a church and have 98% of Christians carrying flip phones if it meant that we looked at each other in the eyes and were like, man, I'm good this week. I'm clean this week. Let's go. But there's some weird shame in that. We have, a, we have more shame in turning and repenting hard from something, lest somebody knows there's something wrong with us, than we do in the actual thing that's wrong with us. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So instead of throwing our phone into the river, we take a break from social media, read a book about some strategies, set up some accountability, and those all help. Those aren't bad things. But we're white-knuckling it. I would call these shallow repentance. This is not turning 180 degrees, it's turning two degrees and hoping it helps. So what does true repentance look like? I had a friend in college who had the similar issue as, as our modern issue is a quarter century ago, so deal with it. It's not new, guys. Um, back in the day before uh, smartphones, in a laptop there was actually a card. I'm going to put it on the screen. Um, this is an airport card. This is in my friend's Apple laptop. Ken Jenkins is the only person who knows what this is. Um, and I said this beforehand. I was like, Ken will be laughing. Everybody else will go, what? Um, essentially, this thing was the only way that the computer could get on the internet. And so I have a friend in college who was struggling with pornography, and he came over to my house one day, and he had this card in a Ziploc bag, and he goes, it's yours now. I don't want it. I can't handle it. I'm not responsible enough to use it. And so you're not allowed to give it back to me. And I took it, and I never gave it back. And I talked to him last week, and I said, that's one of the most life-changing things I've ever seen in, in my whole Christian walk was you doing that. And he's like, what? And I said, it's the first time I ever saw somebody really repent. Accountability, he told me. But he, what he did is he, he cut his eye out, cut his hand off. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to get access to the thing. My heart issue I got to work on, but let me get rid of the easy access. And I went, that's a move. That's deep repentance. We have to stop with shallow repentance and sin habits and heart matters in our relationships. I would say it this way. I'll put it on the screen. I'll read it with you. Shallow repentance is a pause button. True repentance unsubscribes, deletes the account, and throws the phone in a river. Shallow repentance takes a break. You're in that relationship. Hey, let's just take a break. It's getting a little too hot in here. Shallow repentance takes a break. True repentance breaks it off. Shallow repentance says, I'll be better. True repentance says, I cannot be better. I need Jesus. The whole point of Jesus is we couldn't do it. The whole point of Jesus is we can't white-knuckle our way there. We can't iterate ourselves to perfection. We can't improve our way to better life. We couldn't do it, so Jesus had to show up. We've all sinned and fallen short. Your best is not good enough. So it required intervention beyond you which is back to this embracing versus embodying kind of idea. Shallow repentance embraces the idea of turning away and being better. I embrace that idea. I would like to not do these things. I'd like to not drink that. I'd like to not be with them. I'd like to not sin that way. Shallow repentance embraces that idea. True, deep repentance actually embodies it. It says, yeah, but not me anymore. Not for me. My wife, when we were uh, first married, my wife had never seen me have a drink. My story with alcohol is I was deeply irresponsible with alcohol. And so there was a point in my life where I said, I'm not allowed to have it anymore. I was an adult. I was of age. It was legal. The church was fine with it, all the things. And I said, I'm not allowed. So we got to our 10th anniversary. My wife had never seen me have a drink. 
And she says, why won't you have a drink? Like, she wasn't pushing it on me. She was just curious. Like, why? what's the story? And I was like, the story is I have too much to lose, and I've been too irresponsible in the past. And so short of something else changing, I'm not going to go down a sin pathway because alcohol in my life always led to other sins. I'm not going to go down that sin pathway because I can't afford to lose you or these children. I, I can't afford that. I won't, I won't risk it. And so for 12 years of my life, I didn't have a drink. And that was my version of handing somebody my internet card. Is my version of taking them, throwing my phone in the river. There's, there's things we all have to come up with and do that even if it's culturally okay, we're a church that says, if you want to have a glass of wine with dinner, have a glass of wine. You want to sit around with your friends and have a bourbon and, and talk about the Bible, do that. We're that church. And if you're in this church and you go, that's not for me, I, I run into problems with alcohol, we go, cut it off. But we have to be serious about our sin avenues. We have to be serious about the things that lead us into dark places so that we can be smart enough and courageous enough to cut them off. I'll say it this way. If you believe you can work a strategy to conquer sin, you've already been defeated. The strategy is I'm going to cut it off and then I'm going to appeal to the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus in my life to transform me to forgive me, to transform me, to heal me, to make me new. But if you think there's a strategy, if you have something that's eating you alive, if you have something you brought in here with your life and you're going, man, this is hard for me right now. I'll just read another book. I'll just get another strategy. I'll Google it. Six ways to get out of this thing or that. Strategies won't do it. Nothing short of the power of the Holy Spirit saves. You don't need more grit. You need more Jesus. You don't need more self-control. You need more Jesus. The only Jesus that, that can work in your life, that can turn you from the afflictions and the addictions of the temptations. When the storm was raging with Jonah, what happened? He says, I can't calm the waters. And he told the sailors who were with him to throw him overboard. Jonah said, God's going to have to calm the storm. I can't calm the storm. Throw me overboard. He preaches to Nineveh. What's their response? The response of the Ninevites in their own way, they go a little overboard too, don't they? Everyone in sackcloth, even the animals. Guys, I Googled looking for pictures of sheep in sackcloth. I couldn't find it, but thanks to the generative AI boom, I made my own. Don't look too close. Some of those sheep have nine eyes. Anyway, I made my own. Can you imagine being so repentant and wanting so much to show God how serious you were about turning away that one day you heard that every cat and dog in Bowling Green was covered in burlap. You go, hey, aren't we going a little overboard with this? That's what we would say. That's a little ridiculous. Aren't we going a little overboard? And I would tell you, Jonah had to go overboard for the storm to stop. That the people of Nineveh had to go overboard on their repentance for God to go, they're serious about this. I wonder what it is that we need to go overboard about in order to turn away from the life that is leading us to destruction. Repentance always feels foreign too, doesn't it? That's what makes repentance hard. It feels foreign. We naturally got ourselves into something. It is a different sort of way to go the opposite direction. It's an unnatural, supernatural decision to turn away from the way of the world and to follow the way of Jesus feels foreign. No one in here is normally dressing up in burlap. It's itchy. But you put it on 
something changes. It's the break from normal. It's the exit from the highway of sin and death. It's here to shift how we see the world around us. And here's the shift I want you to get. The shift I need you to see for repentance as we get towards our close. Here it is. Repentance is not a punishment, but an invitation to live the life of fullness for which you were created. We see repentance as a punishment. I can't, I, I didn't drink for 12 years and it was the greatest gift of freedom God ever gave me. Not because I didn't occasionally want to have a margarita with my wife when we're eating enchiladas. The freedom was I never had to worry that that trap was going to take me down. It wasn't a punishment. It was freedom. And the same is true when we look at the things in our life that are trying to take us down. We have to stop seeing repentance as a punishment. I have to turn from these things and go into God's timeout. God's grounding me for a season. And we have to see it as an invitation into the life of flourishing he's designed for you. He wants better for you, not less. He doesn't create rules. He doesn't create principles. Jesus doesn't lay out a way that's going to make your life poorer. He's going to make your life richer and fuller and more incredible. So the invitation to turn from the way that's leading to death isn't a way of punishment. It's an invitation to life. Repentance is not a scary prison of denial. It's an invitation out of the prison of sin. Invitation to freedom to live as you were intended to break free from guilt and shame the number of people walking into this room saddled with guilt and shame. It's too many. If some aspect of your life is abusive or oppressive, why wouldn't you want to freely walk away from that? From a shallow embrace to a deep embodiment, from from just maybe I'll try that, to sackcloth-wearing, phone-in-the-river sort of repentance, to crying out for God to make a change in your life. In the Jonah story, guys, we often identify with Jonah. It's the way the common preacher will have you do it. Aren't you like Jonah? Where are you being called that you're running from? Not wrong. It's Jonah's story, though. It's not you. I would argue that we are best seen not in the story of Jonah, but in the story of the Ninevites. If we want to see who we are, we're more the Ninevites than we were ever Jonah. We're the people awash in brokenness and then blinded by it. And then the prophet, in our case, Jesus, the Savior, shows up to give us some good news, that there's a way out. That yet destruction was where you were headed, but there's a different path. There's another way, and if you only turn and follow me, you can join the way of life. So repentance becomes a gift we're given. It's a pathway to freedom. And while it feels foreign at first to put on that burlap and go the other direction, there's profound beauty and hope for anyone who would find it. So I would say this to close out. There is something in every single life in this room that is inviting repentance. There's some aspect, some sliver, some of them are huge, and you know what they are. You're like, man, if people could read my heart right now, they wouldn't like what they saw. And others of you are like scanning a little bit going, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of pride down here. I guess I was a little bit jealous about that over there. Maybe. Everybody in the room has some place of repentance that's required. There's nothing too small. And if walking east leads to death, then what direction should we turn, gang? West. West. If walking east leads to death, what does it look like for you this week to turn west? Or maybe, 
what would it look like for you to go just a little overboard, just a little too far in response to what God has invited you to do? To get into the deep waters where grace abounds, where freedom is found, and where you get to live the life you were created for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are uh, an incredible designer. Lord, you have uh, made us just like we are. You've made us in, uh, in the beauty of diversity and the beauty of your creation for your glory. And uh, Father, we would confess that we don't live up to your standard. There are places in all of us where we are falling short, where we are stumbling through life. There's places where we have sin and shame and guilt. God, my prayer is that as your children, we would hear your call to turn. Father, we would not be uh, embarrassed by the fact that we are required to turn, that we wouldn't be embarrassed to tell somebody we're struggling, that we wouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed to admit that we've fallen short. Lord, get rid of that shame factor in this place. Let us be a church of radical transparency and radical accountability. Let us be the church that goes overboard in response that we might experience the fullness of your life and your goodness in this place. Father, thank you for Jesus, for his call upon our lives, for his salvation that he offers. God, thank you for sacrifice. Thank you for Jesus. We ask you to turn our hearts, convict us, encourage us, be present with us, pull us close as we chase you with our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.